0: As you go ahead and open your Bibles to John 18, I would like to point you to the front of your worship guide. You'll see the catechism question there for this week is the reason why we need Jesus. I don't know if you pay attention to it, uh, but it's there every single week, a different catechism question from the New City Catechism. This week the question is, what does the law of God require? That shouldn't be too hard. Answer, personal Perfect, perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. What that means, friends, is that we are all hopelessly lost. We need someone who can fulfill the law's demand, someone who can perfectly obey the God the. Uh, the law of God. Someone who can love God and neighbor with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's not you, that's not me, that's Jesus. And I hope that his life, his ministry, and the grace that he offers us all shines brightly to you as we consider him in his word this morning. So let's do that together. Allow me to begin by reading the text. We're going to be in John 18, verses 1 through 11. (coughs) Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, we prayed much to you this morning, but not enough. We desperately need your help. I need your help. I need to communicate your word clearly, carefully, and powerfully. And the hearts of your people need to receive it in faith. So God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be alive, active, and at work in this church this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, one, one night, not, not too long ago, I'm sitting on the couch at home, and I, I get a text message from Amber, my wife, with these words. Hey, just letting you know, there's a huge guy that's been following me around Target. I just checked out and I saw him in the dollar section right next to where I was checking out. And then I saw him walk out of the store. He was watching me while I was in the checkout. And I'm not just being paranoid. I went all over the store and there he was. The baby section, the kid's section, the Christmas section, little girl's bedding section, etc. He was everywhere that I was. Babe, I really think he's following me. I immediately picked up the phone. I called my wife to get a better read on the situation. My wife is not overly anxious or paranoid. I don't get text messages or phone calls like this from her very often at all. So when I called and I could hear the anxiety in her voice, I was concerned. I asked to get a better read on the situation. She elaborated and I said, you know, just stay right there. Just stay right where you are. Here I come. So I put on warm winter clothing. I jumped in my car. I raced to the Target shopping center, and I got there. I parked illegally by the front door, and in my tennis shoes—not my Crocs—I sprinted uh, to the checkout line, where I found Amber standing nervously, waiting for me. Now, I—I I rushed to that shopping center that night, willing to have a conversation, but prepared to fight. In this fallen world, in this fallen world, there are times where the use of force is necessary, even violent force, for the sake of justice and righteousness. I've given you one example from my own personal life, but the examples could be multiplied. A police officer tases a suspect charging at his partner in a drug fueled rage. A man tackles an armed robber pointing a gun. At a clerk in the gas station, a father shoots an intruder kicking in the back door of his home at 2 a.m. A soldier points a rifle at a militant insurgent who has been trying to take over a village and take the women hostage. As I said, sometimes life in a fallen world necessitates the use of force, even violent force, for the sake of justice and righteousness. But what happens when Christians... Mistakenly use violent means to accomplish spiritual ends. Well, this is the theme of this morning's sermon. As chapter 18 opens, John moves us out of the high priestly prayer that we've been in in John 17, and he brings us back into the narrative of his gospel, and we are sprinting towards the cross. So, as the sprint begins, as the starter pistol fires, We find Jesus and the 11 disciples, as we saw in verse 1, moving out across the Kidron Valley. Moving out across the Kidron Valley. Now, a little thing that will be helpful for you in your Bible reading is to remember that in the Gospels, uh, these Gospel writers, they don't ever waste space. Uh, Paper and ink, it's a valuable resource in short supply. So if there is something in here, if there is a detail in a gospel, it's there for a reason. So why is this information about Jesus and the disciples moving out across the Kidron Valley? Why is that here? Why is that relevant in the mind of John? Well, I think John wants us to know that Jesus' arrest happened away from the hustle and bustle of the city center right just stop and think about it it might not have been so easy to arrest jesus in the heart of the city jesus the guy when he made his entrance into the city the whole city turned out throwing palm branches on the ground shouting hosanna hosanna he has arrived you try to arrest this guy in the middle of the city, it might turn into a situation. Police officers in large, densely populated metropolitan centers like New York and Chicago and L.A. They have, you know, horror stories of trying to make a simple arrest in a densely populated neighborhood, and all of a sudden, the neighborhood gets involved, and an arrest turns into a riot. So I, I think that Jesus, excuse me, I think that John wants us to understand here that the arrest did not happen in the city center but on the outskirts of town. Now look at verse 4. We're just going to look at the last part, excuse me, the first part of verse 4. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. So if he knew that it would probably be safer for him to stay in the city center, where it would be harder to arrest him, Why did he choose to move out across the Kidron Valley and to go into a more secluded place where it would be easier to arrest him? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's because Jesus is not trying to hide. Jesus is not trying to prevent himself from being arrested. Now look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So John tells us that Jesus and the disciples, they're not in hiding. Even though they left the city center and they went out into the the fringes of the city, they didn't go into some secret hidden place. They didn't go off into the woods. They went to the place that Judas the betrayer knew well. They went to a well-known hangout. Why? Because Jesus is not trying to protect himself. He's not trying to hide. He's not trying to prevent his own arrest. And if you're wondering why that's so significant, don't worry. You'll see in due time. Now look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, that's Roman soldiers, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So here we are introduced to the Roman Soldiers. Right? So up to this point, most of Jesus' interactions that have been hostile have been with the Jews. But now the Romans are getting involved. And and we should probably ask and stop here and ask, why are the Roman soldiers present at the arrest of Jesus? Well, in order to understand that you have to remember the context. The context is this is the Passover. The Passover is a season of great political and spiritual and emotional fervor and turmoil. If there's going to be an uprising against Rome from the Jews, it's probably going to happen during the time of the Passover when all the Jews come back together to remember the time that they were liberated by God from their wicked, despotic oppressor. And So every Passover, the Romans would station their soldiers like, like UN troops In a hostile area, they would station their soldiers just to keep the peace. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly how Judas got the Roman soldiers involved. All that John tells us is that Judas somehow not only only betrayed Jesus to the Jews and the religious leaders, but he also got the Roman soldiers involved. But it's probably not that hard to figure out how they got involved. I mean... Judas probably went to them and said something like, hey, we're going to go arrest this guy, Jesus. And just so you know, this has potential to be volatile, right? If 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 this doesn't go smooth, there's going to be an eruption in Jerusalem, the likes of which you have never seen. So it would behoove you to come with us to make sure that this does not go poorly. That's probably what happened. Now, Another really significant thing for us to, to note here in this text is that as Jesus is being arrested, the enemies that come to pursue him are Jews and Greeks. This is tremendously significant. The religious leaders are the Jews. The Roman soldiers are the Gentiles. And from this point forward, we will see that the death of Jesus cannot be laid at the feet of any one group of people. So, you, if you are inclined, Kanye, Martin Luther, to, to blame the death of Jesus solely on the Jews, you'd be wrong. The Jews are certainly involved, and they incited the Romans to be involved, but it is not entirely their fault. The Romans are here as well. The Gentiles, the Greeks, they are present Now, if you're an early Jewish Christian reading this and you're thinking, yeah, those nasty Gentiles, of course, they came and arrested our master. No, the only reason they were involved in the first place is because of the Jews. What John wants us to see here is that the whole world is now against Jesus. That's what the Jews and the Gentiles represent. They represent all of the nations of the earth, God's chosen nation, and then all of the other nations are all in rebellion against God's Son who has come to save them. So as we move forward, Jesus' arrest, His trial, His death, it's not just a Jew thing, it's not just a Gentile thing, the whole world is arrayed against Him. It's not this party or that sect, it's not this tribe or that race, it's not this religion or that religion, it's the whole world. You see this Further trotted out in the book of Acts, as the apostles go out and they carry on the ministry of Jesus, Jesus said, you will be hated by the world. And so we read in Acts chapter 14, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the apostles. In Acts 14, 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. Acts 21:11 And coming to us he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said Thus says the Holy Spirit This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles So even Paul's death which is an image of Christ's death when that happens is going to be at the hands of both the Jews and the Gentiles because The opposition that Christians face in this world, because our master faced it in this world, the opposition we face in this world is an entire world opposition. The rebellion against the high king of heaven is not some parochial dust up. It is a whole world issue. Which means means that the salvation offered by God must also be universal. If it was just the Jews that were opposing God, the salvation would only need to be a rescue mission for the Jews. If it were just the Gentiles that were opposing God, it would need to be just a rescue mission for the Gentiles. But it's not. It is the whole world arrayed against God and his son Jesus. Therefore, the solution has to be an entire world solution. And it is. Reflecting on this after many years, John writes later in one of his epistles in 1 John chapter 2, he says this. Jesus is the propitiation. That's a a big theological word. It just means the, the, the sin offering. He is the propitiation for our sins. And who's the our there? It's the Jews, right? He's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, as we... Move into verse 4, we kind of get out of the details of the text and we start to move into the heart of this morning's story. As we move into verse 4, we begin to encounter the real battle that is playing out before our very eyes. And the battle is this, note takers the battle between the sword of the Spirit and the sword of steel. The battle between the sword of the Spirit and the sword of steel. So let's begin by considering the sword of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 we are told that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now you may be wondering why why do they call the the, the Word of God the sword of the Spirit? We don't really have time to unpack that all this morning. I'd encourage you to go and like read about that later today if you want. But In the Bible, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. That is, God's word is pictured metaphorically as a weapon that Christians use to carry out spiritual warfare. This truth can be seen all over scripture, but perhaps nowhere more clearly than in Jesus's interaction with Satan in the temptation account. Do you remember that? Jesus was baptized. He goes out into the wilderness and then he has this encounter with satan and satan is trying to get him to give away his birthright to betray god to join his team and there are three successive attacks that satan lobs at jesus and do you remember how he responds to each one he responds with the word of god jesus does the same thing here in john chapter 18 as Judas and the religious leaders and the soldiers approached Jesus to carry him away in the night, to lead him to his death, Jesus responds with the power of his word, the sword of the spirit. Look at verses four through six. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Judas said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, there are a few things for us to notice here. Okay, so first of all, John tells us that Jesus moved towards his enemies, right? Jesus sees the enemies approaching and he doesn't back away. He doesn't cower in fear. He doesn't take cover. He doesn't try to hide himself amongst the disciples. I don't know who Jesus is. Maybe it's one of those guys. No, the text says that he moved towards them. He steps forward in confidence. There's a little lesson here for all of us. And the lesson is not that we are all just like Jesus. So that we can step forward as powerfully as he did. The lesson is that none of us are like Jesus. None of us have the same power that he has. But we are in him. And he has already overcome the world. And he has already overcome all of our enemies. Therefore our confidence is not in ourselves to step forward. But to step forward in the power of him who has already won. Now the next thing for us to examine here is the phrase that Jesus uses when he identifies himself. They say... We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am he. That's the way it's translated in your English Bibles. If you were to look at it in the Greek, it would be ego ami. I'm not pronouncing that right, but you get the point. You don't speak Greek. You don't know. I should have just said it with confidence and moved on, right? This guy knows Greek. But the point is, is that in the Greek, it is the same construction that you find elsewhere when Jesus identifies himself with the name of Yahweh. You guys probably remember back in John chapter 11, Jesus was having his showdown with the religious leaders. And they said, who are you, man? And he goes, before Abraham was, I am. And do you remember what they did when he did that? They picked up stones to stone him. Why? For blasphemy. Because he was so obviously taking the name of God for himself. And so here, as the enemies of God once again approach Jesus, and they ask him to identify himself, he does the same thing better believe it. I am him. Whew. But then the text tells us something really strange. And it's, it's weird because like John doesn't even seem to emphasize it. He doesn't put a lot of emphasis on the detail. But the text tells us that they, um, they all fell to the ground when he said that. Now, falling to the ground is a, a common reaction in the Bible whenever someone encounters the divine. You can see this in Ezekiel 44, for example. As the prophet is called into the presence of the glory of God, it says, Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Or Acts chapter 9. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, as the Apostle Paul, before he's the Apostle Paul, when he is still the persecutor, Paul, as he encounters Christ in his glory, the first thing that he does is fall to the ground. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 John, the one who's writing this gospel, is called away in a vision. And in this vision, he beholds just a a semblance of the glory of God. And it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So here's what's happening in John 18. The soldiers are simply trying to make their arrest. They need to make sure that they have the right person. Like a police officer serving a search warrant. You know, We're here to arrest John Doe. Are you John Doe? Please identify yourself. Let us know that you are John Doe. The soldiers are here, just tell us, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, you bet I am. And when he says, I am he, when he, just, when he lets just a little puff of his divine glory touch his enemies, they fall to the ground. Now, if you were to ask an outside observer, Right? Let's just say you could be a fly on the wall in this encounter. If you could ask an outside observer, who has all of the power in this situation? Jesus and his 11 disciples? Or all these soldiers with their swords and their spears and their torches? Who has all of the power? Any rational, impartial, objective Observer would say, of course, the guys with the guns, right? The guys with the swords of steel, they are the ones who are in control. But that could not be more wrong. There is more happening here in this story than the carnal mind can comprehend. Jesus is the very word of God. He is the sword of the Spirit. And when he pulls his sword just a little out of its sheath, By just barely identifying himself in his glory, it is enough to overwhelm all of the physical force of his enemies. If Jesus wanted to, he could have taken complete control of this situation. He just said, I am he, and he knocked everyone on their backs. He's not worried about these guys with their weapons. If he wanted to, he could have taken complete control, and he could have taken out this entire evil entourage. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's not trying to protect himself. Because he's not trying to prevent his own arrest. Now, there is someone present among them, one of his own disciples, who does want to stop the arrest, who does want to protect Jesus. His name is Peter. Let's look at verse 10. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, and that's not a spiritual sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. What we see here is that Peter wants to protect his master. Peter sees the religious leaders, he sees the Roman soldiers, he sees Judas the betrayer, he sees the swords and the spears and the torches, and he knows that something evil is coming. He knows that Jesus is going to be taken away. There have been close calls in Jesus' ministry so far where people have surrounded him to attack him, to stone him, to take him away, and Jesus sort of just cuts right through them like a hot knife through butter. How did Jesus make it out of this scrape? Don't really know. But in this situation, Peter knows this is the last stand. They are going to take Jesus, and his fight-or-flight instinct kicks in. He does what his instincts tell him to do, and his instincts tell him he has to fight. So he pulls out his sword, and he starts slicing and dicing and swinging haphazardly. But here's the thing, and this is really important. In Peter's attempt to defend God, he is ironically Working against the will of God. What do I mean by that? Let's say it like this Friends, true disciples of Jesus may not use carnal means to accomplish spiritual ends. That's what Peter's doing here. He's trying to use carnal means, namely violence, to accomplish spiritual ends, namely the success of Jesus's. Mission In Peter's mind, if Jesus is arrested, then Jesus is going to die. And if Jesus dies, then the mission will fail. Therefore, he will save the mission with violence. And in so doing, Peter fails to recognize that he is doing things exactly backwards. We have to remember the entire purpose of Jesus' coming to this world is so that he would, in the end give himself up as a sacrifice. It's not like Jesus came to reign victorious as an earthly king and then he was killed and God was like, all right, i got to figure out how to somehow spin this into something good. No, this was the plan from the beginning. So if Jesus is never arrested, then he's never tried. And if he's never tried, then he's never crucified. And if he's never crucified, well, then he can never bear the wrath of God for sin on the cross. And if he never bears the wrath of God for sin, then he never suffers the complete penalty of sin, which is death. And if he never dies as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners like you and like me, then the sinners must die themselves. Or to say it another way, if Jesus doesn't die, then we do. Peter loves his master. Yes, it's true. He wants to see him safe and protected but he has failed to understand the mission. And in an attempt to defend his master, Peter ends up doing the very thing that could prevent his master from doing that which he desires. You guys remember on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus was killed and then he was resurrected, he appeared to those disciples who were sad walking down the road. Jesus, he gets on to him a little bit. He's like, man, he doesn't call them idiots, but close enough, right? And he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things in order to enter into his glory? Yes, it was necessary. Do you guys remember earlier in his ministry, Peter came up to Jesus and he's like, listen, you're never going to die. Not if I have anything to say about it. Remember what Jesus did? Get behind me, Satan. It was necessary. No rest, no death, no salvation, no redemption, no rescue. Now, I've got one more thing I want us to see here, and then we'll get into the application. And it's just the same kind of contrast that we see all throughout John's gospel. This time, the contrast is between Peter and Judas. And maybe you already noticed it, but let me just point it out for you again. Jesus had the ability on this night to annihilate everyone present, but chose to withhold violent force. Peter was completely incapable of stopping anyone from doing anything that night. His best effort led to a guy with a half of an ear. He was utterly powerless, but he chose to exercise violence in vain. Jesus had true authority, which allowed him to not exercise his power, but to restrain His power, even against his enemies. Peter had essentially no authority, which caused him to overcompensate and foolishly try and apply the little force that he did have in a very unwise manner. And finally, Jesus was controlled by two things that night. He was controlled by love and a mission focus. But Peter was controlled by his emotions and by a carnal vision of earthly success and safety. Or we might say it this way, in summary, Jesus used the sword of the Spirit, but Peter used the sword of steel. Now, let's, let's talk about what this means for our lives. Let's get into some sustained application. In Romans 15, Paul says this. He says, whatever was written in former days, like John 18, was written for our instruction so let's, let's pause and let's ask ourselves, why is this story from John 18, verses 1 through 11, written for us today? What instruction does God have for us, not just as we sit here in the pew thinking lofty theological thoughts, but like tomorrow, as you go back to work, as you drive, as you educate your children, as you fight with your spouse, as you think about money, as you try to have sex lives that are oriented to the glory of God— all of these things how does this text come to bear on your life well i have two points and the second point has four subpoints the first point of application is right mission peter's actions here are a classic example of when helping hurts you ever heard that phrase before when helping hurts peter is trying to do the right thing he's trying to help his master But were he to succeed, he would do exactly the wrong thing. This is like the classic example from economics, right? A charity in the United States wants to help poor people in an impoverished nation. So they say, we're going to send them all of our used clothes. (coughs) They send all of their used clothes into this very poor country, and it completely shuts down the textile industry there, killing the economy. You tried to help but you ended up doing more damage in the long run. That's what Peter is doing here. And friends, we have to admit that Peter's in the Bible for us, right? We just, like if you ever read about Peter and you think, oh man, it would be good for someone else to hear this, wrong. Well, probably true, but also like you're Peter, right? I'm Peter, this is in the Bible for us. And what that means is that sometimes we set out to do the exact right thing and end up doing the exact wrong thing. Now, let's think about this. In this story, why did Peter, in his desire to help Jesus, do the exact wrong thing? Well, it's because he misunderstood the mission. It's not for lack of Jesus explaining. <laughs> okay. Now, sometimes we Christians in the church does the exact wrong thing for the same reason, because we have misunderstood the mission. Sometimes we know the mission, but then we forget the mission. Sometimes we're firmly rooted in the mission, and then we sort of drift away from it for various and sundry reasons. Christians who, left, who lean left drift from the mission and go one way for certain reasons. Christians who lean right tend to forget the mission and, and drift away from it for other reasons. So maybe let's just pause here and remember what our mission is. Does, can anyone tell me what our church's mission statement is? Sorry, I know this is a sermon and not a Bible study, but you can raise your hand. Does anybody know what our church's mission statement is? Russell? Yeah, it's the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus tells us what our mission is. Therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, our mission is a reverberation of Jesus' mission. Remember what Jesus' mission was. His mission was to come to earth, to live the perfectly righteous life that we can never live, to, to be the second Adam, the better Adam who never fails. And he did that. And then to die and to bear the wrath of God for sin that we deserve, to be buried, and then to be resurrected into glory, and then to serve at, at the Father's right hand as, as our lawyer, right? As our advocate, our, our high priest, our intercessor that's the mission of christ our mission is to go out into the world and tell the world he did it it's done that's why the gospel is called good news it's not just information it's a proclamation we're going out and we're saying hey jesus came he did war with satan and death and sin and he won and now he is inviting you into his victory that's our mission This mission cannot be accomplished by the power of the sword. There's no kind of physical violence that can accomplish this mission. Our mission is a spiritual mission. If we are going to see any success by God's grace in moving the mission forward, we must be people who champion the sword of the spirit, not the sword of steel. Which leads me to point number two. The right weapon. Peter tried to move the mission forward by inappropriate means, the means of violence, and many Christians, both today and throughout church history, have made the same mistake. What I want you to see here in this point is that Peter using the sword is like a metaphor, a God designed metaphor, a, a very ample metaphor for every kind of carnal force that Christians might try to wrongly employ in an attempt to carry out the Great Commission. Let me just say that again. Peter using the physical sword, the sword of steel, is like a metaphor, a God-designed metaphor, meant to tell us something about every kind of carnal force that Christians might try to wrongly employ in an attempt to move the mission forward. So I have... I sat down and I thought of like 15 different ways Christians employ carnal means to move the mission forward. And I know, I know you guys wanted me to do all 15, but I, I just didn't know if we had time. So I just narrowed it down to four, okay? Do all 15. We don't care about the time. Jonathan, I'm sorry, man. I just got four today, okay? Here they are. The first one's probably going to be the, the longest one. But uh, yeah, we'll start here. The sword of politics the sword of politics. Here's a great headline from uh, the Babylon Bee. Local Christian counting on a kingdom of God as backup plan just in case favorite political party fails him. And uh, for once I read the article, right? We don't ever read the articles. We just read the, it's about the headline, but somebody actually writes these, the, the body of the article, and I thought it was worth reading. On the off chance that my political party doesn't usher in peace on earth, I guess there's always Jesus, he said thoughtfully as he opened his Bible for morning devotions, but actually spent most of the time checking Twitter feeds of his favorite political pundits to see which front the culture war would be fought on that day. It's good to have a plan B to fall back on, he says. He doesn't expect his chosen political party to fail him, obviously. He pointed out that they have all the money, all the power, and they promise to use the government to do the stuff that he approves of. Americans are uniquely at risk for placing too much trust in the sword of politics. If I was preaching this, this uh, sermon in like an underground church in China, I just wouldn't even make this application point. You guys remember when Mark Collins, the missionary from Shanghai, came here and he gave us his little talk and we we got to talking a little bit about politics. He was like, it's so weird being in America, because like in China, Christians just know they have no power. They have no capacity. They cannot use politics. They have to run from the government, hide from the government. But Americans, we are blessed, and I mean that, we are blessed to live in a country where we can use the means of government to accomplish good. And I would not want that to be changed. Having said that, it does come with a risk. And the risk is Christians believing that if we can just elect the right guy or pass the right law, then we can finally see the kingdom of God flourish in our midst. Now, I want to pause here and get out ahead of an objection from maybe some of our more thoughtful members. I understand that most members of our church are more mature their political theology than that right we I'm actually really proud that I can say that like we don't this is not like a church where we're like across the board we we vote Republican you know although we probably do but like (laughs) but like I understand that most of us are not in that place we don't think about politics like that praise God nevertheless placing too much hope in politics is something that every politically active Christian just has to be careful of. Just like placing too much hope in anything in this fallen world. And it's precisely because we are blessed to live in a country where we really can use the machinery of politics to accomplish good, even spiritual good, that we have to be extra careful that we don't come to trust in it more than we trust in God. You know, every now and then I'll, uh, I'll poke my nose back into Twitter sniff around a little bit. Usually I go, oh, okay, and I got to go, right? But uh, what I like to do is I like to just scan the, like the timelines of like people that I used to follow when I, when I was on Twitter. And uh, I got to be honest with you, it's, it's pretty discouraging. You know, I'll go and I'll look at this person who used to just be on fire for Christ, and now their timeline is just everything but Jesus. Politics, fashion, Celebrity gossip, evangelical celebrity gossip, just just utterly devoid of Christ or any any whiff of the gospel. So now, here's why I'm telling you this. Recently, I found myself scrolling through a theologian's timeline. This is a theologian that I used to follow. I used to pay a lot of attention to, and his timeline was nothing but politics. When I say nothing but politics, I mean just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. No scripture, no quotes about anything related to the theology of the gospel, just political rhetoric nonstop. And by the way, this happens for Christians on the right and the left. And as I was scrolling, I just thought, man, how can it be that this brother, and I do count him as a brother, but how can it be that this brother is not trusting way too much in the American political system? It's not just the volume of his political commentary that's concerning, but it's the intensity, the arrogance, the carnality of the political commentary. And there's even a way that you can talk about political matters that is saturated with Scripture, saturated with Christ, and utterly glorifying to God because you are pointing all things to the gospel. That's not what this guy was doing. I remember as I was scrolling through his timeline thinking, this your, your Twitter account feels like Peter slashing the sword. Vainly at the enemies of God. It doesn't really feel like you're doing anything. But what if instead of flailing around the internet, shouting into the void to your 14,000 followers, with your political diatribes, what if you would spend more time wielding the sword of the spirit in your home, in your church, in your community, and yes, on your Twitter feed? How much more effective could you be for the kingdom of God then. Sword number two, the sword of worldliness. Christians very often want to win the world by becoming like the world, right? We think that if we can act like the world, dress like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, reason like the world, then the world will finally accept us. Friends, it just doesn't work like that. And by the way, if you're really a Christian, you're just not going to be able to do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are told that the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. The mission that we believe in, that God became man, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, that he was buried in the grave and then he rose again, and that that actually accomplished Something like the salvation of the world. The world looks at that and says, we don't believe that. Not only do we not believe it, but we think it's ridiculous. I mean, Joe Rogan, on one of his podcasts, he was talking to a guy. He said, you expect me to believe in some Jewish zombie? He's speaking about Jesus. You expect me to believe that some Jewish zombie is going to lead me to heaven? That's what the world thinks about the gospel. And there's no amount of dressing it up or being friendly, not that we shouldn't be friendly, or doing whatever you can to endear the gospel that's going to change that. Only those who are born of the Spirit can comprehend the things of the Spirit. In John 16, Jesus tells the disciples, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So, brothers and sisters, the only way that we can win the world is by recognizing the fact that we have already been rescued out of the world by God's grace and that Jesus has overcome the world himself. Later in 1 John chapter 4, John says it like this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in chapter 5, he says it like this. Notice the language here. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Here's, he's going to tell us how have we done it? How have we overcome the world? Our faith. Not our weapons. Our faith. We do not overcome the enemies of God be they religious leaders, violent persecutors, or demons with carnal means of force. We overcome them by the victory that we have already received in Christ. Sword number three, the sword of violence. The sword of violence. I have no clever story, illustration, or metaphor on this subpoint. I just want to state this truth as plainly and as simply as possible. It is only the children of this world who believe that they can accomplish, accomplish spiritual ends through carnal means. Look at verse 36. Go to chapter 18, verse 36. We're going to talk about this more next week, but as Jesus is standing before Pilate, he says this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Looking at you, Peter, right? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. The only people who fight using carnal means of force to move the mission forward are people who are not of God. They are people who are of this world rather than the world of heaven. To say it another way, there is no such thing as mission by violence. And brothers and sisters, we have to admit that in church history, there is a tragic track record of Christians who have just utterly failed to comprehend this. I know when we talk about like conversion at the point of the sword, we tend to think about like our Muslim friends, and that's not unwarranted because conversion at the point of the sword is kind of at the very heart of the Islamic faith. But Christians do it too. But here's the difference. When Christians do it, we are being utterly inconsistent with the gospel that our master preached. And then, subpoint number four the sword of human words. The sword of human words. Remember, the swords represent the, 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 the carnal means of force that we might employ. And one of the most subtle carnal means of force that we might employ is the usage of our own words rather than God's words. In 1 Corinthians 1, God tells us that there are two kinds of words. There are human words, which are folly, and then there are words of the Spirit, the words of Christ, the words of true wisdom, the words from heaven, the words of power. He says it like this, 1 Corinthians two thirteen, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God. So here's the point. The only way that the mission of God will move forward is through the Word of God. My words, as your pastor, are not God's words. Your words are not God's words. The words of your favorite online Christian celebrity. You love all of his books or all of her devotionals. You watch every conference message that they deliver. Their words are not God's words. Our words are only powerful and effective for the sake of the mission insofar as they echo God's word. So, Let's let's think about this like practically mom, dad. You are at your best as a parent when you are trying to disciple your children with God's word. I get it. And I've talked about this before and I'll probably talk about it again. I understand that as parents, sometimes we have to say, because I said so, that's why. Right. Sometimes you just got to do that. But friends, this cannot be the habit of our Christian discipleship in the home. If you say, honey, you you, you can't dress like that, or son, you can't talk to your mother like that, or hey, it's the Lord's Day, we're going to church, and they go, why? And you say, because that's just what we do. Mm, No. There has to be something beyond that. If you want to move the mission forward, beginning with the sphere of authority that God has given you most powerfully, the sphere of your family, You just need to be regularly in the practice of just sitting down and opening the Bible with your children, especially in times of conflict, especially when they're questioning your authority, especially when they're infuriating you by challenging you, especially when they're just getting crazy with their sin. That's exactly at the moment where you need to sit down and you need to say, son, daughter, I'm going to tell you something, and I really want you to hear me. Listen to the wisdom of your parents. But I want you to know that I think insofar as I can tell that this wisdom that I'm giving you is not from the lineage of Western society, but it's from God's Word. And let me just show you that. Look here with me so I can show you where this is coming from. And you don't even have to have a physical Bible. I use my Bible app with my kids all the time. It's just right there in my phone. I, I lose Bibles. I probably shouldn't tell you that, but I, I, I lose most of the Bibles when I take them with me. But my Bible app's always on my phone, so I'll just pull it out. And I just want them to see that when Dad says something... When I'm at my best, what I'm saying is not from myself, but from God. Bosses. I understand that this is extremely difficult, especially in some of these workplace environments where you have to do all this, you know, DEI training. And if you talk about the gospel, you can lose your job. And I understand it's complicated. But even if you're not able to explicitly like sit down and be like, all right, employee, this is how we need to do better. Let's look at the gospel of John together. Even if you can't do that, try to just have your words be the words that resonate the word of God to your people. Just try to, in any way you possibly can, echo the truth of the gospel and the wisdom of God's word to your employees. This is also true of pastors. Every time I've failed as a pastor, it's been because I've allowed my words to come through louder and with greater clarity than the word of God the aim of all ministers of the gospel, be they pastors like me or deacons like Tim and Spencer or just average church members like all of you who aren't so average, I might add, the aim of all of our ministries should be to speak the word of God because that's the only thing that can change anyone. Paul says it this way in First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God from us, Which you heard from us, oops. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, I get it. Paul was an apostle. He spoke, and when he spoke under divine authority and inspiration, he communicated the word of God. That's different than me and you, but here's how this still applies to us today. We can try insofar as we can to make sure that when we open our mouth and say, this is what God says, that we are saying something that's actually from the Bible. You'll notice probably that in my sermons, I modulate the force of what I say based on how sure I am that it is grounded in the word of God. You've probably heard me say at times something to the effect of, now listen, I'm not saying X, Y, Z. I'll say that because I want you to know that this is kind of what I think, but I'm not sure, and it's super complicated, and on this point, I don't know that I found maximum clarity from Scripture, but as a pastor, this is kind of like, this is basically what I'm thinking, and I think I want to tell you that, but I want to give you leeway to disagree with me, because I'm not God. And then there are other times I'll stand up here, and I'll just say, thus saith the Lord, and you better do it, because ultimately, God says that you should do it. We have to be very careful that we get that balance right. If you're new to our church and you're wondering why we do some of the things the way that we do them, you should know it's because of this truth. All of our corporate prayers are based on the word of God that we're studying together that morning in the sermon. So like Andrew this, this week, he studied John chapter 18 verses 1 through 11 as he wrote his prayer of confession. Why? Why? Because we want to pray God's word, because we understand that the more of God's word in our word, the more power our prayers have. Why do we sing some of the songs that we sing, whether they're old or new, they have this style or that style? It's because we're not really super concerned about the style of the songs. We're more concerned with whether or not they echo the truths of God's word. Why do we preach expositionally? Why do I just walk through a book of the Bible? Because even though I don't do it perfectly, I think it's probably the safest way to make sure that when I stand behind this pulpit, my voice is silent and God's word God's voice comes through clearly. And so, yeah, in light of this reality, you know, it's probably best for me not to end this sermon with a, a clever or pithy conclusion from my own. Mine, but rather just to end with the word of the gospel from Romans chapter 10. The gospel tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe with our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray.